This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, a few weeks ago, he was in charge of leading Canada's vaccination effort. Now, he's accused of sexual misconduct. The Canadian Forces National Investigation Service has handed the findings of its probe into the allegations against Major General Danny Fortin to the Quebec Authority that is now responsible for potentially laying charges. The Department of National Defence announced this move yesterday, but they didn't say whether that comes with any you know, recommendation or determination from that investigation. Let's get the latest on the situation now from Global News political reporter Amanda Connolly. Good morning, Amanda. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. So what do we know about this investigation? What do we know about the allegations? Very little so far. Again, Global News had confirmed um, last late last week that this was related to a sexual misconduct allegation against Major General Denis Fortin. Uh, we did hear that confirmed officially for the first time from the Department of National Defense on Wednesday afternoon. They had not previously commented on any of the details of that allegation um, specifically. Um, and, and so really, we, we don't have a lot of really confirmed, clear information to go on here. And that certainly has been the case with a number of the other allegations that have come forward, the high-level allegations in the Canadian military over the last three and a half months, there does tend to be, um, again, not not a lot to really go on at the outset here. What we do know, though, of course, is that Fortin stepped aside uh, as as the director of, um, or really the, the head of Canada's vaccine rollout for COVID-19 late last week, and that the investigation into him had been uh, appears to have been started several weeks ago because Trudeau, Prime Minister Justin, Tr- Justin Trudeau, has said that he was uh, informed of this several weeks ago, and we don't know at this point why that was or what the um, what the decision process was like for the military there to tell him about that several weeks before the public learned of this and Fortin stepped aside. Okay, so the Prime Minister did know a couple of weeks ago. Any information on like how many? Is this one instance? Is this several instances? How long this goes back? Anything like that? For what we can tell right now is that they, they have been using the term allegation singular. So there, there is no indication at this time that this is in regards to multiple allegations right. or any kind of a pattern of behavior. Uh, that is, of course, really important to, um, to be clear on here. Fortin has, uh, through his lawyer, who is, um, who, who has spoken about this, has vigorously denied the allegations, says that he did not know, uh, the details of them. He didn't know of any kind of charge or specifics, um, against him until he was actually informed of this apparently by media on who reached out to to him for comment on Sunday uh, and so the, the his lawyer certainly is saying that this is this is unusual that you would um that there there uh, would perhaps normally be more information shared with an individual in this kind of case and 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 really raising questions about some of the ways that this has been handled so far yeah i guess so but i guess with all that was going on right they had to talk about it publicly here so what are the next steps amanda what happens now 
So we're waiting to see later this afternoon if we will hear for the first time from the new head of Canada's vaccine rollout who has replaced Fortin, that is Brigadier General Krista Brody. Uh, there is a press conference set later this afternoon to talk about uh, the state of vaccine rollout in the country. We don't yet know if um, Brigadier General uh, Brody will be attending that. Normally, you would see Fortin attending that type of event. So we're certainly watching carefully to see if she will be there. Uh, she, of course, is uh, has been working with the Public Health Agency of Canada, along with uh, Fortin and a number of different uh, military members who've been seconded to that agency to help with the rollout. So she has been uh, billed as someone who is very much in the know, very closely um, linked in with all of the work that's been done here and certainly very, uh, very capable and in the know from what we've heard so far to take this rollout uh, through through the next uh, the next stages here as they really ramp up getting those vaccines into arms. All right. More to come on that. Then, Amanda, thank you so much. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, that's a welcome sound for so many fans of Tragically Hip out there. And I think Raji Sohal is one of them, aren't you, Raji? I kind of am, Simi. I can't say that I'm a total hip head, but, um, you know, in 2017, when when uh, the music world lost Gord Downey to brain cancer is when I sort of discovered their music and saw how much it it impacted Canadians. Um, were you a fan? Are you a fan? I'm not a huge Tragically Hip fan, no. And I know people who are, I know, I, I remember talking to Jill Bennett about this, like she went to one of those concerts, you know, the last tour that the Tragically Hip did before Gord Downey passed away. Um, so I know that there's people who are super, super passionate about the Tragically Hip. Yeah. And I, I don't know if it was the events around Gord Downey's passing and whatnot, because that was all very dramatic and played out in public too. And I watched it. Um, I watched it all on screen, but I didn't make it to any of those concerts in person. The song we just played um, is actually a snippet of a new song that's really old, that's 30 years old. It's a song called Ouch, and it appeared in a box along with a lot of other songs, 44 master tapes, that were lost from a session that the Tragically Hip recorded in 1990. Whoa. And they, yeah, they recently unearthed them and they've uh, decided to put it out as a surprise new album. It's called South Saskadelphia and it comes out tomorrow. And the songs were recorded for 1991's Road Apples, uh, but they thought they lost them in a universal lot fire. So this has all just come out as a surprise to oh, everyone. I know and the story about the universal lot fire. Like there's yeah. a lot of musicians who lost a lot of their music at, in that lot fire. It's, it was a huge tragedy in the music industry. Yeah, or, or lost it and, you know, didn't actually lose it. Maybe, I mean, this one has appeared and um, I wonder if we'll hear stories ever of other ones having appeared because it was a major fire. So that comes out tomorrow and I'm really excited for big fans of Tragically Hip. Like I can't consider myself one, but I just feel like this is historical for for them. I mean, what if a band that I really, really loved uh, uncovered something and earthed something from 30 years ago? That would ago, be huge, I would be right? really pumped. So, yeah. Would you put them in the... Like, like, where would you put them in the list of top Canadian bands of all time? I'm not talking artists, like single artists. I'm talking bands. Where would you put the Tragically Hip? Simi, I'd put them right up there. I would really put them right What is right that, top three? The top? top five? Uh, let's say, like, let's say top 
Top 10. Oh, top 10? Top I mean, 10. That's harsh. Yeah. <laughs> a new Joni Mitchell uh, album is going to be released soon. And I feel like that's got to be right that's up huge, there. That's got to be like top three. So I was looking at uh, big Canadian bands because I was saying to our producer, Greg, like, where's Trooper? I love Trooper. And oh, I, if wow. I had to pick my favorite Canadian bands, I'd probably pick Platinum Blonde because that was such a big deal when I was a kid, when I was in high school. Platinum Blonde was a very big deal uh, when I was yeah. young. Remember Platinum Blonde? I, well, I remember the music videos. Oh, they were so anything. great. They were like Canada's Duran Duran is what Platinum Blonde was. Totally, totally. See, that's music I can get behind a little bit more. The number one, so I found this article actually at Ottawa Life magazine where they rated the best top Canadian bands of all time. And I immediately thought of our Mike Smith, who comes up at nine o'clock here this morning. Uh, And number one is Rush. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Number two is Tragically Hip. So right up there, as you Mm -hmm. said. Okay. Yeah. Number two. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Number sure. three was the Guess Who, which I can understand, right? But yes. Great Big C. Nickelback is number six, Raji. Oh, goodness me. <laughs> <laughs> when you say six, do you mean like actually 66? Like No, like number six or? on their list mm. of top 10. Mm. Bare Naked Ladies, Arcade Fire, Arkells, those were all the top 10 there. So there's some big Canadian, but you forget how big, how many big Canadian bands there are. And for the most part, those are older bands. Arcade Fire is the only like quite recent one. I'm not counting Nickelback. You noticed that, right? Yeah, I noticed that. Of course I noticed that. <laughs> so for Tragically Hip fans, good news for you that there is an, a news. Is it an album or is it just new songs coming out? It's an album, yeah. Wow. And there's actually a, a live song on there that's about the um, Montreal massacre at Ecole Polytechnique. So it's not going to be a light album. It's going to be it's going to be full on. This is Mornings with Simi. Yet another scam for you to worry about these days, and this time it involves gift cards. How you ask, can that be a scam? I'm wondering about that too. Well, we're going to find out right now from Carla Laird, who's the manager of community and public relations for the Better Business Bureau. Good morning, Carla. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for being here because I don't understand. How are gift cards being used as a scam? Well, the... The, the, the long and short of it is that it's the best payment method for scammers because of the fact that there are so many, um, I suppose, less restrictions compared to a debit card or a credit card. And so if you check out most of the scams that take place, whether it's your romance scam, your tech support scam, your prize scams, or even the purchasing of vehicles and pets online, most of the, these scams, this, the victims will tell you, I was told to make a payment with a gift card. And the gift card might be an Amazon gift card, an eBay gift card, even a Steam card. But at the end of the day, that's how they end up losing money. Okay, so how does this start then? How does this begin? So in most cases, it starts out with some kind of purchase or some kind of transaction taking place. And for instance, in in most cases, especially now, it's puppy scams or where you're trying to make a purchase of a puppy online. And because most people are at home, they have the convenience or even just wanting to get a puppy to make their, their time at home not so lonely. And you go online, you see these websites and you see all the puppies that you could possibly want and you pick one that you think is a perfect match for you. You bring your, your conversation with this person. They make it sound like a legitimate process. They might ask you questions about your ability to take care of the puppy. And some of them might even give you some kind of transaction, of, of some, some kind of um, comfort that the transaction is legitimate. Whether it's a case where you're going to get a tracking number from wherever the puppy is to get 
set to you so you feel like, okay, I can watch this puppy getting closer and closer to me and monitor that movement or something along those lines. But at the end of the day, once they say to you, okay, so how do you want to make payment? Gift cards, you know right away it's a scam. And that's usually one of the ways they'll definitely put to you. So they might say credit card. And when you give them the credit card number, they say, oh, no, the credit card number isn't working or the process, the transaction isn't being processed. How about you try sending us with a gift card instead? Right. Very sophisticated schemes. But all at the end of the day, it's just a way for you to make that purchase with a gift card. Right, but super anonymous, right? Because that can't be traced. Exactly. And that's one of the biggest reasons why, because once you give them the numbers at the back of the card and you might be either telling them the numbers on the back over the phone, you might text the numbers to them. Some of t- In some instances, you take the picture off the card itself and send it to them or by email, whatever it is. Once they get that, they they have the money and you are almost likely to not get that money back. No. It gives them anonymous. They are, they are able to stay anonymous. And at the end of the day, you don't know where they are. You don't even yeah. know who you are even talking to. Carla, tell me about the story. There's a victim from Regina in Saskatchewan who lost $33,000. Yes. And as in, in all my years of working with BBB, this particular one is the first time I'm seeing someone lose that much money to a gift card scam. So basically with this particular scam, the person got a pop-up on their iPad saying that, you know, they're doing some kind of illegal activity and they need to contact Apple right away in order to fix this problem. And, if you know, they give them a sense of urgency that this situation has to be dealt with right away. They're being told that, hey, this is the number to call. If you don't call, you're going to be arrested. People are going to know that you're a criminal. And what you need to do is make payments with Google Play gift cards to fix this whatever problem of criminality that's going on. And, you know, we didn't get into the entire detail of what happened, but the long and short of it is this scammer convinced the victim to spend $33,000 in gift cards. 33, like I can't even imagine going to the store and buying that many gift cards. And they'll break it down for you. So in some instances, they might say you might need to make purchases at multiple stores of $100 gift cards each time. And what the scammers will give these kinds of instructions because they know the store manager or even the cashier is savvy or is aware of the fact that Scammers tend to take advantage of consumers. And so if they notice someone making a huge payment, they might be um, likely to ask questions. Hey, just double checking that, you know, you're not being scammed. Why are you making such large purchases of gift cards all at once? And we've known so many victims that were this close to making purchases until someone stepped in at that cashier. So that's the reason why they'll say, okay, go to multiple stores, buy only $100 gift cards, and I'll stay on the phone with you so that you feel comfortable the entire time. Oh, boy. So these you're right about sophisticated, right? They really keep that pressure on. They keep the pressure going. And that's really why so many people don't recognize it's a scam until it's too late. All right. Well, listen, thanks for the advice this morning, Carla. Thank you so much for having me. That's Carla Laird with the Better Business Bureau. They've really noticed an uptake in the number of gift card scams that are going on. Uh, just And just a few of the reports, the one, the big one being the $33,000 uh, somebody paid out in gift cards to some scammers. Someone from Burnaby lost $1,500. Someone from Pitt Meadows lost about $500. That was a Facebook scam, actually, and ended up calling, used gift cards to pay. If anybody ever asked you to pay something in gift cards, it is a scam, which is what the Better Business Bureau would like you to remember. 
This is Mornings with Simi. The province of Quebec is embarking on some proposed language law reform, and they're also seeking to change part of the Constitution, the Canadian Constitution, to affirm that Quebec is a nation and that its official language is French. So how can one province do that, just unilaterally decide to change the Constitution? And the Prime Minister even said that, yeah, Quebec can do that. That's what they were told. Can they? So we thought, let's try to explain this situation. Joining us is Jeffrey Rath, a barrister and constitutional law expert at Rath & Company. Jeffrey, thank you for being with us this morning. Oh, my pleasure. I'm really hoping you can explain this. How can Quebec do this? Well, if it's coming out of Prime Minister Trudeau's mouth, we're not quite sure that you can. I'm just reminded of an old lady in a doctor's office the other week when she was asked what she thought of Trudeau. She was told that, uh, or she said that uh, he reminded her of a spoiled rich kid who's been given a country to play with, right? So um, I don't think it's clear that a province can unilaterally amend the Constitution. I think Jason Kenney and certain other premiers would be jumping up and down for glee if that was the case, because then Alberta could just unilaterally uh, amend itself out of the uh, equalization payment provisions and uh, off itself out from having to send $10 billion a year to Quebec. So I'm not sure that this is something that uh, uh, is legally sound. And just because Prime Minister Trudeau says it's true doesn't mean it is. Right. And I think that he's working, you know, a fairly huge mischief on the country, you know, by wading into things that he clearly doesn't understand. Right. But if they got, they, they, you know, they were saying that they had a legal opinion done on this, they consulted, what would they have consulted? Like, where is the rationale? Like, constitutionally, looking well, at the Constitution. I'm not, I'm not even sure what they're talking about, to be frank. I mean, there's a recent decision called Desotel from the Supreme Court of Canada that was, uh, uh, you know, dealing with uh, the hunting rights of the Sinaiqs, uh, First Nation people from the United States to come up and hunt in British Columbia. And in that case, Saskatchewan made the argument that uh, somehow or other the NRTA provinces were exempted from having American Indians come and hunt in their provinces because they were somehow protected by the, NRT, the Natural Resource Transfer Agreements. And what the Supreme Court said in that case is, well, wait a minute, right? These agreements are constitutional agreements they're not the Constitution itself. So the Constitution is always going to govern. So I suspect it's very much the same case here. Um, you know, Quebec can unilaterally, you know, declare itself purple, and the government of Canada can, you know, either by express agreement or by implied agreement, by not, you know, not arguing with them, um, allow them to do that. But at the end of the day, um, you know, does what Quebec is doing have anything more, you know, have any more effect than, you know, a provincial agreement with the federal government or alternatively a unilaterally passed right. piece of uh, um, uh, legislation. I would, I would suspect that the Constitution is always going to govern and the Charter of Rights is going to govern and all of the things that bind uh, Quebec within the Constitution would continue to govern. But, you know, we have an, we have an issue where um, obviously our Prime Minister is giving <clears throat> all kinds of uh, credence to the thought that uh, Quebec can unilaterally amend the Constitution. In fact, the Premier of Quebec was quoted as saying, I'm happy that he, and he's talking about Trudeau, confirmed that we have the right when we said that we can unilaterally but, amend the Constitution. But the Prime Minister so, is not the Supreme Court of Canada, right? So, no, that's so the they whole can thing. do so, this. I mean, so you know, what... again, it's, it's, you know, it's just like Prime Minister Trudeau you know, suggesting that it's a good idea to mix and match vaccines. 
or you know, or saying, okay, the drug companies say you have a, have to have a second shot in in two weeks, but because of I've studied drama, I now understand medicine, and I can say that you can have your second shot in four months. I mean, it's it, to me, it seems to be the same kind of uh, incompetence that he's been exhibiting throughout the pandemic. And you know, at the end of the day, if you know Quebec's aspirations aren't met and Quebec decides to separate, I guess the bonus is that he can't be prime minister of Canada anymore because Jeffrey, <laughs> Jeffrey, Quebec won't be part of Paul, the country. Jeffrey, politics aside here let me ask you then would this need to be challenged by another province like would it need to go to the supreme court of canada to definitively decide this issue oh i suspect that's where it's going to end up i mean if and it's likely to be um you know citizens in quebec whose rights are being you know trampled by what amounts to a new version of bill 101 um you know that would take this up and and you know be arguing they'll be arguing that the constitution of canada governs and quebec is going to be arguing that they've been given permission by uh you know prime minister trudeau to unilaterally amend the constitution so their unilateral amendment governs so i suspect that's where we're going to end up on it right okay that's good to know jeffrey thank you for your time it was my pleasure thank you yeah that is Jeffrey Rath, barrister and constitutional law expert at Rath and Company, talking about this uh, Quebec situation. I was wondering about this for days now because the the Quebec government has said they are going to just modify the Canadian Constitution and put in there that uh, Quebec is a nation and that its official language is French. And everybody seemed to think, oh, okay, they can just do that. It's going to have to be challenged. Clearly, this will end up being challenged and go to the Supreme Court of Canada. But then you're talking about that decision, what, years away before that being dealt with? This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Sky high lumber prices, increases in construction costs, even the Vancouver Police Department saying they're investigating a spike in thefts from construction sites where the stolen item of choice is plywood. What is going on out there with lumber prices? What kind of an impact is that having? Joining us now is Susan Yurkovich, who's the president and CEO of the BC Lumber Trade Council. Susan, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me with you. What is going on with lumber prices right now, Susan? Well, I think what we're seeing is, you know, uh, a reaction to a classic issue of supply and demand. As you know, in 2020, we had a massive shock to the system uh, in terms of uh, the the initial shutdown of of virtually most production uh, in our business. And, of course, then you had people staying at home and you had saw strong demand for repair and remodeling as everyone stuck in their homes wanted to build a deck or refinish their basement. Um, and we've also been seeing prior to the pandemic started starting, we've had, you know, growing housing starts coming back to kind of a near normal level. So you've got really strong demand and then you've had this supply shock. So you, you mentioned plywood, lumber, but anything to do with the home realm, if you're trying to do any kind of a project around the home, you will find that, you know, whether it's a fridge or a stove, plywood, oriented strand board, 
uh, lumber, those are all exp- uh, experiencing, they've experienced inventory disruption yeah. uh, from the pandemic and, you know, strong demand, so higher prices. So how is that impacting the construction industry? Like are costs being passed along to the consumer? What's going on? Well, right now, of course, you've seen, you know, very high lumber prices and those have to be passed along to the consumer. Um, You know, you have to remember that a year ago when we were talking just over a year ago, prices were under 282. I think they were about $282 per thousand board feet and now are in the 1600s and, you know, have been going in just a, a huge spike up, something no one would have anticipated. But, you know, with this extreme uh, shock in the system, you know, inventories then being depleted with strong demand, that's going to take a while to kind of get back to a, a more normal level. I think we are going to see continued strong demand. So, you know, I think prices will moderate as we move forward, as the supply chains and inventories uh, sort themselves out. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, you know, we're going to have high prices which are passed on to consumers. Yeah, so when you say, um, you know, for now, how, how much longer do you think we can expect it to be like this? Would you say the rest of 2021? Well, I think they will moderate, and you've seen lumber futures sort of fluctuating a bit and, and coming off a bit. I think things will start to sort out, but I would say that we are going to still, cons- uh, I think we will still experience strong demand uh, for building products, particularly given what's happening in the United States. And that's a, a situation where you've had an underbuild of housing for many years post the 2008 uh, economic crisis. And so you've got housing starts that have come back to kind of near normal levels. You also have in, in, in our world right now in the U.S. particularly, the largest group of people who are moving into that household formation age group. So the 25 to 34, it's right. bigger than the baby boomers. So that group is going to be looking for places to start their homes. And we have also have historic interest rates. So all of those things are, you know, certainly driving demands for building products. All right, more to come on that. Susan, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, my pleasure. Take care. That's Susan Yurkovich, who's the president and CEO of the BC Lumber Trade Council, talking about these sky-high lumber prices, even resulting, the VPD told us, in some thefts uh, of, of lumber from construction sites that they are now investigating. So we'll go, we're going to be talking more about this. Tomorrow, joining us on the show is going to be UBC Forestry Professor Terry Sunderland to talk more about this whole lumber theft situation. And if it has impacted you in some way, and I know a lot of people that this has impacted, like any home renovation project, anything that you need some lumber for, it is a sticker shock when you go to, to go and buy it. Uh, if it's impacted you in some way, let me know. Simi at CKNW. Dot com. We'll talk more about it coming up on the show tomorrow. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the University of British Columbia researchers are launching a Canada-wide COVID-19 vaccine registry and survey. And the purpose of this survey and registry is to collect data from pregnant and breastfeeding individuals. So what they want to know more about is the risks and benefits of immunization, because for that particular group, it's still, there are still some questions about that. So they are going to try to work on this to talk more about it. Joining us is Dr. Deborah Money, who's a UBC professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So tell me, when does this get underway and how many people do you need to participate in this? Well, we haven't actually launched yet. The announcement was um, uh, 
uh, about our funding, which we're really pleased to have support to, to run this. And what we've done is launched a, a just a, a interest uh, page where people can sign up to express interest in the study, and we'll be launching very shortly. Okay, and so what what does that involve then for somebody if they express interest? Well, um, once we invite them to participate, um, it involves giving us some of their very precious time. So we would need them to be willing to um, fill in some information on themselves, on their pregnancy, and on whether or not they've uh, taken the opportunity of being vaccinated with one or two doses, and then um, basically how their pregnancy concludes and, and how things are for the baby. So is this like groundbreaking research? Is this being done everywhere else in the world as well, or is UBC breaking ground here? Well, uh, there are other registries that have been launched, in particular in the United States. There are um, at least two, one out of the Center for Disease Control and, and one just south of us at the University of Washington. And uh, close colleagues of mine there um, shared their registry information and how they decided to approach uh, learning more about this. And we thought that this was critically important to do for Canadian information in the Canadian population. And what are some of the questions that you hope to answer with this? Well, we firstly want to understand what um, what motivates women to either take the vaccine or not take the vaccine. So we're, underst- we're interested in attitudes. And then most importantly, we're interested in tracking outcomes related to um, uh, whether or not they take a vaccine and if there's any issues in the pregnancy to follow. And we also want to follow women that don't take the vaccine to compare. We're currently quite confident in the safety of uh, vaccines in uh, pregnant and lactating individuals, but but we really need hard data to uh, support that. Yeah, there have been a lot of questions for pregnant moms, haven't there? Yes, and you know, pregnancy, of course, is a time when when people are particularly careful about what kind of products yeah. or vaccines or anything they take, and they want to know as much as possible. And because this is such a new situation with COVID and the vaccines being um, rolled out very recently, there there have been no formal studies um, of the vaccines in pregnancy to date. So it doesn't matter if this person is vaccinated or not vaccinated; they can still participate in this. Exactly, because we want actually both sides of the story, both from an attitudes perspective and an outcomes perspective. Okay, so when do you anticipate this getting underway? Well, very shortly. Um, because we've only just been uh, given the announcement with funding, we're obviously uh, working very quickly behind the scenes to get the surveys finalized and approved, uh, and then uh, we'll, be, uh, we'll be launching. So hopefully within uh, the next few weeks. Okay, and if people are interested in participating, where should they go? Well, we have a website where they can give us uh, just permission to contact them, and it's called, the, the study's nickname is Covered, and it's covered.med.ubc.ca. All right, sounds good. Listen, best of luck. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's Dr. Deborah Money, a UBC professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. They are embarking on a Canadian study. Researchers who are going to put up a vaccine registry and survey to try to collect data from pregnant and breastfeeding women to figure out you know, whether they're vaccinated or not vaccinated. Just collect information about how this has impacted their pregnancy and just moving forward, just seeing what the impacts are. And I'm sure there'll be lots more to come on that. Now, still ahead for us on the show this 
morning. Oh, we are going to talk more about lumber prices. I got a couple emails on that. Yes, absolutely. We'll talk about the impact uh, it's having on the construction sector, forestry companies, employees, all of that. We have a guest joining us tomorrow who is UBC Forestry Professor Terry Sunderland, uh, who will discuss the impact it is having on uh, the forestry industry for sure. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, that is so perfect. Did you know that if you Google the words Canada's national drink, that there is one? And it's, of course, the Caesar, or as they put it on the Google, Bloody Caesar, which I didn't know that they actually called it that as well. But you know who would know all this? Our contributor, Raji Soho, joins us now. Have you heard of it called the Bloody Caesar before, Raji? I, I haven't, and I don't know about those hybrids. Let's talk about the actual Caesar, the classic Caesar. It's a mix of vodka, Clamato juice, salt, pepper, hot sauce, Worcestershire sauce, poured over ice in a glass that should be rimmed with celery salt, garnished with a little bit of lime wedge and celery stick. If you're thinking that sounds like a liquid meal, it pretty much is. It's <laughs> savory, it's spicy, just a little bit of sweet. And I'm told it's great for hangovers for that reason. Oh, are you and being sarcastic? You're told that? Are you saying you've never tried that? I've No, I've never tried. I don't believe in the whole, what do they call it, hair of the dog? No. Oh, I yeah. Mean, but I see, I see the appeal there. And apparently the popularity of the Caesar is huge. According to Colin McDougall, he's the uh, Corby Spirit and Wines resident expert on spirits. He said Canadians drank over 44 million Caesars last year. But given the alcoholic content of the drink, I am going to guess that there's no way to reliably fact check that stat. <laughs> <laughs> Colin says our reputation for the drink runs international people come visit Canada, like, or, you know, the West Coast here, especially like, okay, you got to try some sushi, you got to try some salmon, you got to have a Caesar. And if you, most, most people are like, what? Like, okay, like, so what's a Caesar? And you're like, it's this, it's like clam juice. And people are like, what? <laughs> so why this drink, right? Part of what makes the Caesar a dead ringer for our national drink is its definitive history. Because some drinks, actually, I should say most drinks have an ambiguous history, right? Like, by contrast, it's argued that the Bloody Mary was born from when a famous actress named Mary had her white dress ruined by Ooh. a red drink. Oh, that doesn't yeah, sound pleasant, does it? It, does, it doesn't. <laughs> but we can pinpoint the Caesar's origin story. In 1969, Walter Schell was opening a new restaurant in Calgary inspired by his travels to Italy. So he took some of those flavors, right, mm -hmm. of like tomato sauce, seafood, and voila. In Canada, like the, the Caesars, definitely you can trace it back to Walter Schell in 1969. And, and I don't think anybody's really debating that. Nobody's like, oh, like he must have been over in Toronto like two months before when so-and-so was doing it. And, um, but, but one way or another, yeah, like with that history, we can, we can pin it down and, and get it to that one site, which I think is really cool for us. Right. And they're very, they're so popular. I've seen some really outrageous concoctions too, haven't you? Oh, I sure have. You know, initially this was just intended to be a brunch drink, but Colin McDougall says that Canadians are such creatures of habit or we're really practical or something because when they go for something, they, we really own it. People come in at like 7 p.m. and they want to start off their night with a Caesar. It's like, you know, would you like some champagne? Would you like, you know, or Caesar? Um, and in Canada, it's that thing that for whatever reason we've embraced. Oh, I feel like the Caesar is the drink of cocktail hour. Do you know what I mean? Like I've oh, been on okay. vacation where I've read relatives be like, all right, it's time for a Caesar. And I'm like, I have an uncle in particular who that was like his specialty for a long time was making Caesars. 
Interesting. So like as an appetizer? Yeah, always. It was like start off cocktail hour with a Caesar. You know what, Simi, just, I don't know, maybe I've never had a really good one. Colin McDougall, he's been head bartender at some of Vancouver's like top restaurants. And he actually let us in on his secret recipe. So let's all take notes. For me, my secret recipe at home, like, you know, one and a half ounces of, of like my, my whiskey, I added, you know, three or four ounces of Clamato, which by, by the way, if you're using Clamato, you definitely want to not drown it. That's one secret right there. Don't like add, you know, one ounce of like your vodka, or whatever your spirit is, and then 10 ounces of your Clamato, because then it just becomes a soupy, soupy mess. Lots of ice in there. And then my ace in the hole too is adding a bit of pineapple juice. So savory, and it sounds weird, right? But like, you know, you have pineapple on ham, right? When you're cooking hams, things like that, or um, it, pineapple works its way in with meats and in savory, in savory ways. So like an ounce and a half or an ounce of pineapple in with the Clamato bridges the gap. It's not just this like clammy mixture now. Now it's got the fruit with it. And, uh, and, and if you're looking at these ingredients on paper, you're probably like, man, this guy is crazy. But if you try it, and for me, then Tabasco, Worcestershire, if you like things spicy, that's where you can add, you know, whatever is your spice, you know, um, to really either crank it up or keep it tame. Um, and uh, yeah, and that's it. And then, you know, there's people who put garnishes on like cheeseburgers and, you know, um, whatever you've got to throw on there, a crepe, you know, <laughs> savory crepe. <laughs> I say go for it. Okay, that's hilarious. I also have to ask people then, where's the best Caesar they've ever had? I had a couple of people already email me, Raji, and tell me they got to go to the score on Davy because they're known for their outrageous Caesars. Sweet. I'll check that one out too. This is Mornings with Simi. Our producer, Greg Schott, is just on fire today with these song choices. Well, earlier today we were talking about it being National Caesar Day, obviously a worthwhile thing to celebrate, have a Caesar. Uh, also, thank you very much for all the emails because I had asked the question, well, where's the best Caesar? Like if you're going to go and have one and you haven't really enjoyed a good one in the past, what's the best one in town? You can email me, simi at cknw.com, but I got to tell you, there is clearly a consensus and I'll tell you what it is just coming up before the end of the show. Well, today is also... Also, World Bee Day. It has been designated as such by the United Nations to raise awareness on the importance of pollinators and the threats they face. It's not so unusual these days to find honey from hives just about, well, anywhere, even in city neighborhoods. And that is thanks to the ever-increasing number of hobby apiarists, like our next guest, actually. Although to hear him tell it, this hobby chose him rather than the other way around. Uh, joining us now is Dave Dorgie, who's the author of Show Me the Honey, uh, Adventures of an Accidental Apiarist. Dave, thanks so much for joining us. Happy World Bee Day, Sibby. Thanks for having me. And the same to you. So tell me, how did you fall into a hobby like this? Uh, my, my sister was keeping bees for years, and my girlfriend Jeannie was keeping bees. And uh, my sister, I live in a floating home out in Ladner. You know that. I used, used to live out in Ladner. Yeah. And I'm on the Fraser River, and I got this big old barge I live on a floating home. And she was out here one day, and I'm behind a kind of a uh, deserted island, and there's a bunch of farms behind us. And she said, hey, this would be a perfect spot for bees. Do you mind if I drop off one of my hives? And the, the key thing that she said is she said, I'll do all the work. So I said, sure. <laughs> so she comes out with 15,000 insects, <laughs> sticks them in the back deck, and uh, then next thing you know, six months go by, a year goes by, and she says, Merry Christmas, they're yours, that's your presents. And so I, uh, I was just sort of uh, accidentally thrown into it. Wow, she really knows you, right? That she knew that she had to ease you into this. She didn't just like throw it on you. She kind of left it there and let it kind of sit. Yeah, but there's so much to know, you know. It's it's a lifetime of learning and I, I wasn't ready after six months. I mean, it is a complex hobby. Well, your honey is delicious because I have had some. 
Uh, and tell me about what it takes though, to get that honey. Like that's obviously the end product, but there's a lot of work that goes into it. I guess that people don't realize that, uh, it's kind of like farming. You got a little farm on your, uh, your back deck and, uh, you know, the, uh, the hive can grow from 15,000 to 30 or 40,000 bees, um, in the peak of summer. And they require, you're not going to believe this, they require feeding. You're going to say, well, I thought they got all of the, uh, food from nectar, but in the wintertime, we give them sugar. Um, because of some of the diseases that are prevalent nowadays, like mites, they require some, um, some conditioning. Um, they, it's called vaporizing. We go in to kill the mites, and the mite is something that is a real threat to, to the bee colonies. And despite all of our hard work doing those two things and a dozen other things, um, half, half of the beehives that um, hobbyist beekeepers keep um, will we'll die over the season, will oh. not make it. So it's, it's a lot of work, a lot of time, and you might not even get honey at the end of it. So I don't then, want to be negative about it because it's yeah. a great hobby. I was going to say, Dave, what do you love about this? I love when I get that one jar of honey after working hard all year that I can give to friends. <laughs> um, no, I, I think it's great for the environment. I, I find it fascinating, Sammy. I find the, um, the way that they interact with one another the different jobs that they have, and they're, uh, they're just patterns of life and the cycle they go through. Extremely interesting just to look at them, and it's really nice to have a, a hive in your backyard or your back deck and just watch them come and go and, and, and observe them. They're fascinating. Yeah, I've talked to a couple of people who've taken this up as a hobby, and there's something very zen about it for them. Well, there's something very zen about it for them, but when you go into the hive, if you're, I, I tend to be distracted and my mind somewhere else, got my cell phone on and I'm thinking about my next meeting, but you, you can't go into a hive like that. You've got to be totally in the moment because the bees, you're not going to believe this, but the bees pick up on it. The jittery movement and doing things quickly or dropping things will, will disturb them and agitate them and make them angry. So it's very important that when you go into the hive, that's the only thing you're thinking about. You're almost meditating on it. I was going to say, uh, it's I'm like, not good at that. It's like forced meditation. It is. Otherwise, you get stung. And that's the other, uh, again, I don't want your listeners to think that I'm, I'm really into beekeeping. It's great. But, you know, <laughs> you get stung a lot, too. I, I felt like a human pincushion after my first year or two. I mean, um, the bee suits are great, but they can penetrate. They can sneak in. And a facial sting is the worst kind of sting. Ooh. So was there a point when you were getting better at it that you weren't getting stung anymore? No. No, I get stung <laughs> consistently every year. I, uh, I, I go in there with a, you know, I go in there, a, as my friend Kincaid says, a, a day late, a dollar short with my zipper not done up properly. And, you know, there's a rip I didn't see. And, uh, you know, the, the, so I've had malfunctions um, over and over again, beekeeping. And I continue to, you know, but uh, it, it's a learning experience. I've been doing it for seven years. And maybe I'm getting stung a few less times now than I did in year one. I think people are very good these days at like understanding the difference in the taste of honey, right? Like they want something that's a little bit different. How do you get that? Well, it's, it's like wine, okay? So people are very discerning when it comes to a Pinot Grigio or, you know, or what type of grapes we use. The, the taste of the honey, and this is quite simple, the taste of the honey is a reflection of the taste of the flowers where the, where the honey is gathered. So if we leave our, 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 our hives near a blueberry crop, or, uh, you know, that, that's what it'll taste like. But for most people, it's just an amalgamation of all the plants in the area. So the honey that I gave you is the flavor around Ladner, around the Fraser River and, and these potato farms and bl- blueberry farms back here. Um, yeah, so it's just the, the flowers that are near the hive. So you can change that up with the different types of flowers? Well, you, you really can't because the, this is really interesting, get this, you really can't because the bees... Guess how far they can fly. Guess how far their, um, their radius know. would be when they leave the hives. I don't know. You don't know. I'm going to tell you. Uh, five kilometers. That's it? So, um, you, 
You don't think that's a far distance? Well, I mean, I guess they're little. I guess that is a far distance. <laughs> <laughs> they're about a quarter of an inch long. So you don't take um, your bees anywhere else? Because I know that, you know, obviously to pollinate crops and things, you've got um, people who bring their bees, right, for certain farms like blueberry farms. So you don't take your bees anywhere else? You know what? I, I don't. And, and most people that are probably more serious into it, serious hobbyists or, or people that are you know, running business do. I just leave mine out in the back deck. Um, all year, and they just go five kilometers around here and forage for everything and uh, and bring it back and and it, it tastes delicious. I mean, I just I just love what they do, and it tastes a little bit different every year. You never know what to expect, you know. But first year I did it, I got a hundred I got a hundred pounds off of my uh, off my hive in the back deck, and uh, second year I think I got skunked. I think the second year my hive died and didn't make it through the winter. So then you were like, I'm hooked now, and I can't give it up. Well, and it tends to um, kind of propagate itself because um, sometimes the hive will split and turn into two hives. You've heard of hives swarming. That's when a hive gets too big and the queen takes off and creates a second hive. So you almost automatically get like a, a bonus deal. And that has happened too. So you're, you're keeping bees with one hive. The next thing you know, you have two, you know, and then, the, you know, you might uh, <laughs> lose a hive. So I've right. been doing it for seven or eight years and uh, it, it's a fantastic hobby. It's great. It's great for the environment and it's, um, it's a great way to learn about, um, about insects. I admire it tremendously because obviously, yes, it is great for the environment too, but like, how do you go on vacation? What do you do? do you have, did your sister have to come over and look after things? That is a great question. Um, it is a big responsibility. So if any of your listeners are thinking of doing it, like I say, I'm all for it, but we have had to come home from vacations um, be, because the bees had to be tended to. You really? Know, if, if you're allowed, don't do it if you're not into it because they're living creatures. And, um, and yeah, they require some maintenance, but usually you have a bee buddy. If you, if there's bee clubs in Vancouver you can join. You meet people that are into it. There's stores that sell stuff. You'll, you'll grow into this bee culture. And if you have a bee buddy, somebody that helps you, you can go on holidays and tag team with them. So it doesn't, it doesn't tie you down as much as a cat or a dog. Right. But I mean, you still have time to write a book. So I wrote a book all about the misadventures. It's almost a, it's almost a how not to book. I like to write with uh, humor and tension. <laughs> and um, it's very self-deprecating. So I'm like the Keystone Cops of beekeeping. And every mistake that could be made, I made. I called it Show Me the Honey, Adventures of an Accidental Apiarist. And it, uh, it took me about two and a half years to write it. And um, it was just a, a lot of fun to write down it. my experiences. A how not to book. Dave, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thanks, Simi. Bye-bye. Happy World Bee Day. That's Dave Dorgy. The book is called Show Me the Honey, Adventures of an Accidental Apiarist. And you can find that everywhere now. I know there's a lot of beekeepers out there. But you can also send me your story about how you got into this as a hobby.